everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Forever Saturday podcast, because it is always college football Saturday in our house. I'm Serena, better known as S. George at R on Twitter. And I'm Matt, also at MattSwartz723. So we'll start with the recap of Michigan's umpteenth consecutive blowout win. I, I, I suppose six. We lost the last game we played last year, but whatever. <laughs> We're not going to talk about that. Consecutive blowout. It's 2023 um, now. Michigan beats Minnesota. That's right. It was technically last year. We got that one in right before the wire there. Exactly. <laughs> 2023. But anyway, Michigan beats Minnesota 52 to 10. It was the third straight week of playing basically the same team, except Minnesota had allegedly a somewhat better defense, maybe. I don't know. That feels disputable at this point. Nebraska might have had the better defense on the whole, but yeah, I mean, Rutgers, Nebraska, Minnesota all were supposed to be kind of similar, but statistically Minnesota looked maybe a little bit better, and it didn't really turn out to be. Like... Yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious if that'll hold, because part of me feels like Nebraska's was maybe just a little bit saltier, but that's what, fair. whatever, the point stands. And this was probably the most dominant win of the three which is pretty encouraging. Yeah, I mean, some of the uh, the numbers that we wrote down here, total yards for this game were Michigan 432 and Minnesota 169. And that doesn't even include the yards Michigan kind of took away from its offense with the two pick sixes. The defense outscored Minnesota's offense 14 to 10, which led to kind of a funny moment after the game when Blake Corum said, talking about the, the defense, I think he told Chris Partridge, he said, they didn't even need us. Like... <laughs> Woof. <laughs> yeah. And it's technically true, right? And by the way, Michigan's non-garbage time defense is now net positive for the season in terms of touchdowns, as in they've scored three touchdowns on pick sixes and allowed two, which is pretty ridiculous. Yeah, that's actually insane. Borderline difficult to believe, honestly. There was another stat going around today that even through six games, Michigan has not allowed a, a first and goal snap. A team has not taken a snap offensively inside Michigan's 10-yard line this season, which I don't even care how bad the offenses you're playing are. You can go through any team in the country, and you're not going to find that anywhere except for Michigan. But just getting back to this game specifically, Minnesota did not complete a pass in the second half. And other than the deep ball touchdown right at the end of the first half, which we'll talk about a little bit, they had 73 total yards of offense before garbage time. So this was just an entirely dominant performance in pretty much every possible way. And I don't think anybody was more impressed than P.J. Fleck because I mean, his postgame press conference was just, uh, it was something. He said, I've got the quote here, I think they're the best football team I've seen in my 11 years as being a head coach. And just inserting a note here that he coached against the Urban Meyer Ohio State teams three times, including in 2014 when they won the whole thing. So that does mean something, I think. And anyway, he went on to say, I've never seen a football team like that, that deep. They're one of the deepest teams, best teams, biggest teams, fastest teams, strongest teams, and they do not make mistakes. They are truly like a boa constrictor. Talk dirty to me, PJ Flat. (laughs) Yeah, fanning myself off as he's just listing all the uh, hyperbolic. (laughs) Is it even hyperbolic? Like, that's just what this team is right now, right? He's right. Yeah, On the one hand, I'm going to say recency bias is obviously a very real thing. And so when you're sitting there saying, this is the best team I ever played, it's so much easier to do that with a team that you just played than it is to accurately remember an Ohio State team that existed 10 years ago at this point. Nonetheless, 
right? It is very, very high praise. And it's the second week in a row that we've heard it. Or we heard Correct. something pretty similar um, from, was it Matt Rule or Matt Rule said something similar, yeah. I, I mean, I think them. coaches are just watching this team being like, what the fuck are they have no weaknesses and they don't make mistakes. Like, this is the kind of team that I would want to build. And I think that's a pretty, I don't want to say universal feeling because I think stylistically, there are obviously discrepancies around. Yeah, Lincoln how Riley we... doesn't want to build a team like this one, <laughs> right? But he just doesn't. I mean, for most guys, they're looking at this team going, "Man, that's just that's everything. They have everything, and it's not just the play to play stuff." I mean, like you said, they don't make mistakes, right? The broadcast pointed out late that until Max Bredesen took what was kind of an iffy holding penalty, it looked just, like he it... just pancaked a dude on the yeah. Edge. That was a pancake. Fight me. Michigan hadn't taken a penalty in this game up until that point. And they didn't take one last week against Nebraska either, which was the first time they'd gone a full game without one since 1980. And to do that basically two games in a row. Since 1980? 1980. Like before you were born? <laughs> yes. Thank you for emphasizing the you to make it clear that I'm significantly older than you. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's, the, it's just math. It's not my fault. But no, I mean, when you add it all up, the offense, the defense, the precision this team is performing at a level that I've never seen out of Michigan in my lifetime, at least the part of it I can remember. And just to back that up a little bit, I mean, we've seen a few stats that have been rolled out the last few days since the game Saturday. We've mentioned on this podcast before the net success rate, right, which is your success rate relative to your opponent in a given week. And then they've been kind of aggregating that now that we've got enough data points over the course of the season. But for this week's game, it was, I think, the third or fourth time this year Michigan has finished with the largest gap in success rate against its opponent. Yeah, that's And they're right. number one in the aggregate by a fairly significant margin as well for the season. Keep in mind, that's not opponent-adjusted. It's just how much better were you than the team you played. So there's a little bit of a you know, grain of salt consideration there, but it's still indicative of how dominant this team has been week in and week out. Another one that came out today was uh, net points per drive, which I think it's Brian Fromo, who runs a, a pretty prominent college right. football stats website, he tracks this. And the reason he thinks it's interesting is because there's been a pretty consistent trend of the national champion every year for the last several years, at least, has gone over a two point per drive margin, as in for every exchange of possession, you're scoring two more points than your opponent. And Michigan right now is at plus 3.8 which would be by far the highest in at least 15 years, which was as far back as he is publishing the data. I mean, that's going to come down a little bit as they get into the, the meat of the schedule in November, but that is still a, just an astronomical number. It's ahead of everybody by a, like a relatively... I think Oregon is about half a point behind, yep. like 3.2 or something like that. Not even Georgia is above three, I don't right. think. Ohio State's not above two right Correct. now, which is very interesting. They were at a 1.9. Um, so yeah, I mean, there is a lot of data at this point out there suggesting that Michigan is the best team in the country and especially our favorite, our baby SP plus. Well, right. I was going to mention the points per drive that also isn't opponent adjusted, but when you get into stuff that is like SP plus and FEI, I mean, SP plus Michigan is number one in the country again this week. And that gap has actually widened a little bit between Michigan and who is number two, which <laughs> we'll talk about that a little bit more later too, but Michigan has gone up a little bit in raw rating, and that gap has widened. So, I mean, there are obviously some questions to answer. Like, we haven't really seen the secondary tested, et cetera, et cetera. And just in general, there are always things that have to go right for you. You can be as like you can be a great team, and still, if you don't get the breaks at the right time, you're not going to win at all. But 
I think we spent a lot of last year saying this team looks really good. Like, you know, maybe is it at that level that it can win a national title? And I don't think that's even a question anymore for this team. Ah! <laughs> no, all I can do in response to that is scream into the abyss. I don't even know. It's kind of scary, right? Like, when you know it's there, if it doesn't happen, it's going to be devastating. But, man, it's it's there. This team really can do it. And they're proving it every week. And looking, I mean, you said this is probably the most dominant of the last three wins that they've had in conference play. And I think that's right. And then when you think about some of the, the little stuff with, like, the secondary coming along, you know, Will Johnson and Rod Moore both missed a pretty decent chunk of the they first They can day. still play better This team than can this. be better. Yeah, and that's can. that's the part that's really like, oh man, this. <laughs> I don't even want to say. It. I don't want to put it out there, but we're all thinking it. Yeah, we are. There's no other way around it. I think it's honestly weird. Like every time I see one of these metrics pop up on my Twitter feed somewhere, I look at it and I'm like, it's that meme, like uh, like the little little no head shakes. I'm like, <laughs> no, I don't. I like. I'm I'm petrified almost by what the data reveals because you're right. I mean, I've never been able to watch a Michigan team that was truly, truly, undoubtedly in this position. Last year, we were like, maybe they'll be in this position. And in 2021, I didn't think there was a shot in hell that they would be in this position. No. But it it's really like... I kind of feel a little bit, I think, maybe like Georgia fans felt in 2021, which is to say they're looking around at their team, which is scary as hell, and they're going, oh, man, it's it could happen for us. It, sh- it should happen for us. Maybe, and after 40 finally. years going, if not now, when? <laughs> right. <laughs> maybe never. And I think that's what's scary about it for us. Is- right. It, well, especially because we're not situated like Georgia, which is to say – the window isn't going to close on Georgia for a very, very long time. I mean, they did, they won that title without a star at quarterback. And we've talked, you know, multiple times about like what we referred to as the Clemson model, Michigan needing good developed, maybe senior pieces everywhere and a quarterback who can do the damn thing. And so if you don't have that quarterback, your window closes a little bit. Georgia's never really closes, right? And it does kind of feel like J.J. McCarthy might be the close of our window, at least for a little while. And so it really does feel like, man, if there is a time to strike, now is the time. Please, 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 please. (laughs) You know, and and that's, it's so, it's like so tantalizing that it's almost scary. I'm like, I'm a ball of emotion about this. I don't even know where to go with all this energy, but... I'm excited and I'm afraid, very, very afraid. <laughs> well, that's probably a good segue into what uh, other teams are probably most afraid of about this Michigan team, which is the defense. I kind of want to start there this week. Sure. As we mentioned, it was pretty comprehensive dominance. I mean, Minnesota averaged 3.2 yards a play and had a little over 100 total yards in non-garbage time. You know, I mentioned the the one deep ball before the uh, right before the half, and I guess we'll just kind of start there. There were two minor annoyances that we can go ahead and address the first one early in the game was the stretch slash outside zone stuff that minnesota was running where they were just straight up doubling michigan's defensive tackles and getting some movement and finding some creases and they broke off a few like five six seven yard runs and generally what you want to see there is if the defensive tackles are both taking double teams that means the linebackers are hypothetically untouched And it seemed that Michigan was being a little bit conservative with those guys early. 
and I think they've been able to do that because the defensive tackles have been so good that the linebackers don't even have to worry about it, you know, at least for the first several games this year. So they were hanging back a little bit, and I think watching for the RPOs that Minnesota has always liked to run under P.J. Fleck. And so it was just a little bit of a, a situation where I think like last week when Nebraska hit a couple slants, they kind of found something that Michigan hadn't really seen much of early in the season and hadn't necessarily scouted. And they thought, okay, here's something that we can do a little bit of, and we'll see how Michigan reacts. Here's the question. Doesn't Ohio State run a lot of stretch? They do like to run stretch with Trevion Henderson in particular because he's the kind of guy like Donovan Edwards where you want to get him in space and give him a chance to get up to full speed. Yeah. So here's the question. If Ohio State is going to run run stretch, are we worried about that? Because, I mean, Ohio State isn't particularly effective at running anything in terms of running the ball. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But if they're going to run stretch, right, and you need to use – you want to use your linebackers in that situation, as we've expressed, right? Do you have a problem for your linebackers? Because I think in a theoretical world, right, you would like your linebackers maybe to try to cover a little bit. Sure. In in the passing, you're probably going to skew a little bit more toward coverage. And so you, I mean, you'd like to be able to do that. But if they're going to run stretch and pick up the yardage on the ground, if the linebackers don't, you know, don't close those gaps, do we have do we have problems? I guess that's hard to say. I mean, we saw in this game Michigan fixed it by either crashing the defensive end on the backside, basically running like a scrape exchange where the the defensive end crashes into the backfield, so there's not really a cutback lane to be had, and having a linebacker fill behind that. Or you kind of let them play that out if they want to. Say, if you want to try to, you know, try to slash us for five or six yards at a time, and that's the game you want to play, we'll take the bet that Ryan Day won't play that game all day. Because he probably won't. He won't. He never has. He won't. He doesn't know how. Michigan played that. I mean, they basically played it that way last year. They played a light box all day. And Ohio State ran reasonably effectively in the first half. If you remember, they had a, a decent, I think they were averaging around five yards a carry in the I, first half. They did. But they didn't stick with it because they don't want to stick with it. That's not their game. But they're the other tough, thing, Matt. Yeah, they're tough now. That's they're true. Tough now. They are tough. You're, you're misjudging. The other thing that I think is going to make that more difficult is what Michigan has a defensive tackle where I think once they saw what was happening, in addition to being a little bit more aggressive with the backside end and with the linebackers, we saw Mason Graham. I mean, I think Michigan's got maybe the two best defensive tackles in the country right now. And Chris Jenkins and Mason Graham, Graham, honestly, he might be Michigan's best defender right now as a true sophomore. There were at least three times in this game where I saw him swim through a double team and just single-handedly destroy whatever was going on in the backfield. And when you can do that and get teams behind the sticks and just blow shit up like that without even involving the linebackers, it takes like it just gives you so much more margin for error and so much flexibility with what you're doing behind that. No, it's genuinely really crazy. And I say this, I talk a lot about this on this podcast, but like learning curve of football and, you know, I talked about how I, f- I understood the importance of good punting for the first time at some point mm-hmm. along the learning curve, right? My learning curve of football moment in this game was understanding why they called it swimming. Mm. Because, <laughs> you know, like, intellectually, I understood it. But I'm like, that doesn't look much like swimming to me as a practical matter, right? It looks like a lot of pushing and shoving and not really a lot of swimming, and when I saw Mason Graham, I was like, oh, he's swimming. 
like there's some there's some sort of like effortlessness about the way that he just kind of well, glides it's also sort of angling your body water. almost like you're right like you're gliding yeah, through water it, i was like oh that looks like swimming it was just one of those moments where in my brain obviously i understood the i understood the name the reason for the name but i never actually seen it look like the thing it was purportedly named for until saturday <laughs> and he's so good at at that he might even be better at the uh I think there's a name for it that I, it's not coming to me right now, but where you kind of grab onto a guy and you just like shove him aside. Like I, I pull you in and push you away in the direction I want you to go so that I can be where I want to be. He just discards 300 pound men like they're blow and with up With one dolls. hand because he's wearing a club on his hand. He can't even use that to grip. And he just, he makes it look easy. And it's, again, this is a true sophomore doing this against one of the, like, I mean, Minnesota's offensive line is not what it has been in the past few years, but this is still from a run blocking standpoint, probably one of the best offensive lines they're going to see this year. And after they got, you know, a few early chunks, Michigan adjusted, Mason Graham decided he was going to take the game over and that was it. And it was over at that point. Yeah. He really is so impressive. It's wild. Like, like blow up dolls. He just like, he's right. like, you're gone. You're out. of. Right. You are not way. relevant to me. I am going into the backfield and I'm taking this play over. Like it, like if I were moving styrofoam, you <laughs> yes. know what I mean? Like he moves 300 pound people. Like I move an empty cardboard box, not a full cardboard box, an empty ass Amazon box. <laughs> like it, it's genuinely wild. It, I've, He's really impressive. He might be the best player on the team, period. And Blake Corum? I mean... <laughs> this is a, a hot take here. Is it? Is I mean, that... he's up there. Like I said, I think Michigan might have the two best defensive tackles in the country. I would put them up against anybody. So it's uh, yeah, it's pretty nice to have, and especially knowing that he's going to be back for at least one more year on top of that. What they have there is going it, to... It's going to carry over. For sure. The other annoyance that we should talk about was the deep ball touchdown at the end of the first half when Minnesota was, they managed this pretty terribly, honestly. I mean, they let the clock run down. They were perfectly happy to play for a long field goal, obviously, in that situation, even though they were losing by three touchdowns at that point. That was what was weird to me was either don't go for it or go for it, right? Like either do one or the other. And it seemed like they were kind of dilly-dallying and like, eh, we kind of want to play for a long field goal, but we don't want to give Michigan the ball back. It's like, you're already losing by 21. Either score a touchdown or and give up. Wave the white flag, <laughs> right. sir. And then they got bailed out for it on the touchdown with nine seconds left or whatever it was, which was really frustrating. It was. It looked to me at least like it was man coverage with cover two over the top. So you had a safety covering each half of the field. And this is really on Keon Sab, I think, who was playing the safety. He was the safety lined up on the same side of the field as the receiver. What happens here is Mikey Sainra stills in man on the outside, and he gets beat by about a step, but he's got pretty good coverage. He's almost right on the guy's hip. And the ball is just perfectly placed just over the top of him where only the receiver can kind of lay out to get it, and, and Mikey can't extend far enough to get a hand in. But that's exactly where the safety should be in that situation. And if you look at the play zoomed out, Minnesota was running fly routes on both sides of the field. They had basically a symmetrical route pattern. And at the top of the screen, to the receiver that the ball didn't go to, you had a corner just underneath him and a safety over the top where there was nowhere to go with that ball. It was played correctly on the other half of the right. field. And yeah. then the where the ball did go to, Keon Sab was like three yards behind, unable to make a play on the ball. So in that situation, when 
Minnesota's only real chance of getting anything meaningful there other than a 50-plus yard field goal attempt is you getting beat over the top as the safety. You just can't do that. You have one job there, and he didn't do it. He did make up for it later. <laughs> yeah, he's forgiven, I uh, suppose. He gave up seven points. He got back seven points. He got back points. seven. It's on the net, yeah, we'll, we'll call it good. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah, and while we're on the topic of the pick sixes, we'd been talking about Will Johnson the last couple of weeks looking a little iffy, rusty, coming back early in the year from his injury. He looked pretty good in this one. I mean, the uh, two plays in, he jumps the uh, the out. And Michigan's up seven nothing. I think you mentioned it's really nice to be uh, twelve seconds into the game or whatever it was, and you kicked off to start the game, and, and you're already winning. <laughs> like, yeah, no, that's the best. It slaps, and it's now happened like two weeks in a row, basically, right? Because Nebraska turned the ball over right away too. Yeah, that's true. It wasn't quite. It wasn't you know fifteen seconds or whatever, but and but it, it happened was... last year against Maryland when they muffed the kickoff and Michigan recovered at like the Maryland nine and scored in one play. It's like, all right, it's fourteen fifty one, and we kicked off and we're winning. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a that's a great feeling. We love that. Anyway, the, the Will Johnson pick, I just want to talk about that one a little bit more. That was because we've talked about this a few times on the podcast where Michigan is willing to play a little bit soft. They like to play cover three on the back end, right, where you have both corners dropping into a, a deep coverage, like a deep third, and then you have a safety kind of in center field. Those are your three guys who are covering deep. And what that usually kind of allows is those seven and eight yard outs. And teams like to take that. That's probably the thing that Michigan most consistently gives, gives up, up defensively. Totally. The reason you don't always want to throw those is what we saw in this game, which was Michigan kind of flipped what they generally do, and they were running what you call trap coverage, which is basically instead of the corner dropping out, he kind of starts to drop out, makes it look like he's going to, and then comes up into more of a cover two where he's covering the flat and you've got a safety sliding over behind him to cover where he normally would be in a cover three. And if you think it's cover three and it's not, this is the result. So sometimes that throws there. Sometimes you think it's there and it's a pick six. Especially when it's Will Johnson, who has like closing speed and the ability to get back to make the play on the ball that not a lot of players have. Correct. I'd be very wary of throwing that on his side of the field, period, if, even if you think it's cover three. That's exactly right. You are willing to give that up sometimes. That's because, why it's a trap. Exactly. That's why they call it trap <laughs> That's coverage. That's why it's a trap. <laughs> we're, we're baiting you into this throw. And if you make it, it's going the other way. This is a podcast where I explain why things are named what they're named. <laughs> it's it's <laughs> an important for, value add. Thank you for joining us. Like, but no, really. I mean, that is, that's the idea. No, that's right. And Will Johnson, I don't believe, was targeted the rest of the game, which is what you kind of want to see out of your shutdown corner, right? Yeah, just don't throw the ball at that guy. Right. No matter what you He's do, He's taking away one side guy. of the field. And, I mean, it's not like they had anything else anywhere else either. Ethan Kaliak-Manis finished 5 of 15 for 52 yards. So... Concerning that the the, uh, the deep ball touchdown at the end of the first half was 35 yards, that means the entire rest of the game he had 17 passing yards. Yeah, I actually remember looking at this because the receiver who caught the passing touchdown, the 35-yard passing touchdown, actually ended the day with two catches for 34 yards. He lost <laughs> one on his other reception. And that, that's, that was about representative of most of the rest of their passing That's game. par for the course, yeah. By the way, Kelly Akmanis' QBR in this game was 5.3. That's five. Nothing before that. 5.3. Gross. Yeah, I mean, they tried to run like three or four waggles, I think, seeing if they could get Michigan to bite on that uh, outside zone stuff and give up something on the backside. And Michigan was just all over it. And the backside defensive end was coming up at Kelly McManus. The linebacker was just blowing up whoever it was trying to roll out into the flat. 
I think they threw that two or three times, like actually tried to complete it two or three times and not once got positive yardage out of it. So it was just, again, a comprehensively dominant performance from the defense outside of a couple little blips early where they said, okay, I see what you're trying to do. We adjust, we take it away, and, and that's it. They did also have, we should mention, um, had a couple sacks. Mason Graham, uh, Mason Graham kind of got robbed here because he really had two. One of them got taken away because of a terrible spot. The spots in this game were very drunk. I'll complain about them later. <laughs> yeah, but he, so he had really two, but only one officially, where he just like murder deathed a couple guys on the interior, blew up Kaliak Manis like in midair, and then rode the boat, which was an extremely funny celebration. I, I'm totally on board with all the celebration stuff that they've got going on here between like salting the corn, rowing the boat. Yeah, they're sassy. They're having a good time. They're really sassy. I like it. They're like, oh, I'm going to think of a celebration that is specifically targeted at you. (laughs) Yeah, they're having a good time. I love that for them. Uh, And the other sack was... If we were playing in Columbus this year and someone had a game ceiling pick six or some shit, I would do the OH at the whole stadium. (laughs) I thought you were going to say like we need like a, a nutcracker rendition somehow. That could work. Ballet. They just <laughs> start balleting yeah. through the end zone. Like, this is the nutcracker. Could be the, what is it, the or sugar plum fairy? an or? actual nutcracker as in cracking I think it nuts. could be either. I mean, I suppose. I'm giving way. them creative license here. They're they're doing just fine as it is without me. No, nah, I just OH the whole stadium. Good teams taunt. That works too. That's exactly right. But uh, and the other, the other sack I was going to mention was Josiah Stewart's. Um, it was Stewart and Derek Moore on this play, both just bull rush the tackles right to the drop back point where Kelly McManus almost got sandwiched and Josiah Stewart reached out and pulled him down. And Stewart's, we talked last week about Nebraska's tackle being terrible and like how much can you take away from that? But Stewart on that play was going up against Arante Ursary, who was an honorable mention all Big Ten guy last year. And he's a pretty legit player. So I think it was the second week in a row where we've gotten some pretty encouraging signs from the pass rush where just about any time they really did have to get into a like, you know we were throwing the ball here situation, they were getting some serious pressure and had really three sacks to show for it, even if only two ended up in the box score. Yeah, the defense is really impressive. What, the number two ranked defense on SP Plus? I don't really know what else to say about them, really. Yeah, number two just fell slightly behind Iowa. No, the Iowa defense is fake. I I know we just played a Big Ten West team, actually two in a row, so I suppose, (laughs) and Rutgers, which is an honorary Big Ten West team, but I've said this a hundred times before. I don't actually think Bill Connolly is capable of adjusting for how putrid Big Ten West offense is. I think Iowa's defensive stats, even opponent adjusted, are a little skewed. I do think some of the some things like that are tough because when you have a group of teams that are mostly playing each other, like the Big Ten West, and all of them are so skewed in one direction, where almost all of them have like good to very good defenses, but just putrid offenses. I think it is hard to really adjust for that and figure out how good is that defense or, or that offense kind of fully unpacked relative to the rest of the country. So anyway, Michigan's got an elite defense that might be the best in the country, just like, fuck, almost everything else on this team. <laughs> Anything else you want to talk about there, or should we go over to the offense? No, speaking of best, I would like to talk about J.J. McCarthy because, you know, we it's time to get into the offense. I think we've exhausted the defense, and... He had some plays in this game that were just perfectly indicative of how fully in control he is of everything that Michigan wants to do. The first one that comes to mind for me at the very least was 
the one where, well, actually there are two. The first one that comes to mind for me is the one where he's like hilariously pointing in one direction, trying to move defenders when he knows damn well that ball is going to Barner on the opposite side. Right, he's side got of a, a throwback to AJ Barner and he's directing traffic when there's not really anybody to direct. He's just pointing the defense basically out of the way. Like you said, knowing exactly where he's going with that ball, which like that's that's a savvy move right there. Mid play. Yeah, we love that. I, I was so impressed by that. And then the other one was the wheel route he threw to Colston Loveland, where he's looking around, he's he's checking out the defense. He he IDs the safety blitz off the edge before the play and he changes the protection yep. and buys himself just enough time to get that playoff. He took a hit in the process too, but nonetheless, right? just enough time to get that ball off to Loveland. Because I think the call was like, hit as he throws, doesn't matter, yep. basically, right? Because he lands that ball to Loveland, who's in for the touchdown. And and we watched the replay of that, and it was really it was really smooth because as Michigan's lining up, and you know they, they often do this now, where they get, to the, they get to the line with about 15 or so seconds on the clock, and then oftentimes J.J. gives kind of a fake clap. They look at what the defense does, and then they may or may not adjust. And on this one, when they get up to the line and they do the fake clap, you see the corner to one side start to back out. And so Michigan, or I'm sorry, Minnesota's defense then has two guys kind of sitting underneath in the same area. And as a quarterback, you know, like if one guy's backing out and you've got two guys in the same area, they're not both going to be there. One of them is coming. And so he sees that. Like you said, he changes the protection. And Ladarius Henderson slides out from left tackle to pick that guy up. Kalal Mullings just crushes a guy coming up the middle. And like you said, bought just enough time where he can let Colston Loveland kind of run that, that double move where he runs the hitch and then curls and turns it into a wheel route. And man, it was just, it was really impressive. Like he was seeing everything pre-snap, post-snap. I, I was also going to mention the, uh, the second play of the game, actually. They kind of do the same thing, right? They get up to the line, they check it. And as JJ's looking at the defense, he moves Blake Corum over from one side to the other. I think he moves him from his right to his left. And what he does by moving him is he sets up an RPO where he's then reading the linebacker to that side of the field. And when the linebacker steps up, he throws a little like six yard out to Roman Wilson. And it was just another one where he's like, I see a guy who he's going to be on Wilson. He's got that covered, but I can turn him into the conflict player by moving Blake Corum. And either Corum's going to have a seam on that side where there's no linebacker because he still bails or I've got Roman Wilson for an easy six yards. And that's the kind of stuff where it is indicative of how in control J.J. is. And also, I think it's something that when we've talked about Michigan playing a little bit slower this year and how many fewer plays they're running in general with the new clock rules, I think that's a trade-off they're making, where they're doing that a lot. And J.J.'s adjusting plays, they're checking, they're doing all this stuff. And I think they're so confident in J.J. that they're like, if you can get us into a good play where we can be averaging seven yards a play or whatever it is on offense, we're willing to take that rather than run more plays into suboptimal defensive alignments. They could have run that first play and run it 15 seconds faster, and Blake Corum probably eats a linebacker at two yards, and then it you know, could have been third and six instead of third and two. And that's just the kind of thing where when you have a quarterback like this that is that, I don't know what the right word is, zoned in, <laughs> I think you you roll with that. You let him do his thing and let him be in control and let him get you into the right situations because it's, it's pretty hard to argue with results right now. Yeah, and I don't know if it's just that I'm a 
you know, a better observer of Michigan than I am of other teams because I'm so familiar with what Michigan wants to do. I'm Mm -hmm. studious about it in a way that I'm not. But I just feel like I don't see that with college quarterbacks that often. Even really good ones, like – there are there are ways that they are are really good ones, right? Where it's like he makes all the throws, right? He you know extends plays, he you know evades pressure really well. But I don't see, I feel like a lot of quarterbacks who feel general like this, at least yeah. not at the college level, at the NFL level certainly. Everybody everybody who's playing at that level you know develops this le- or playing well at that level develops this kind of competency with time. But well, I, I think do there's two reasons for like that. There's it's rare a little yeah. bit. I was going to say, I think there's two reasons for that. One is that there are a lot of offensive coaches who really want that control. You check to me, and we as the coaching staff will figure out what to get you into, and we'll make your job easy. And that's probably the optimal way to do it when you think about how much turnover you have at quarterback in general in college. But the other thing is that, I mean, the, the turnover point basically is that you don't often have quarterbacks who – understand and see and can do all the things that J.J. McCarthy does for very lo- for long enough that they can be comfortable doing all that stuff and be good at it. So, I mean, Michigan's really fortunate right now. Just like we said, it's he's, he's fully in control. We didn't even mention, I guess, statistically, he was 14 of 20 for 219 yards, so 11 yards in attempt plus the one passing touchdown and I mean, the two rushing touchdowns. There were like touchdowns. three drops, too. Right, three drops. There were really only three balls where you were like, eh, that you know, wasn't a great throw or just wasn't quite there or whatever. So just firing on all cylinders, and I just think that's what's made this offense so much better than what we saw last year in 2021. You know, we were talking about earlier how good this team is in every facet and why it feels different. I feel like there were, even last year to some extent, there were still stretches where it felt like things were hard. You know, the, the Rutgers game last year. or What I refer to as root canal offense. <laughs> yes, right. Yeah. The Rutgers game last year is one that comes to mind, or the first half of the Penn State game to some extent, or even first half of Ohio State, although that was without quorum, so I think there were some extenuating circumstances. But there were stretches where things got bogged down and looked harder than they probably should have been. And that is just not there this year, because J.J. is seeing what's in front of him. They're willing to run him a little bit more to threaten teams early. They're willing to take what the defense is giving them, and it's just it's all there right now. I did think... In the run game, he had a couple of kind of questionable zone read decisions. Or if not decisions, it may have been a couple of questionable play calls because there were three times in this game where they were inside the Minnesota 20-ish yard line and they ran zone read. And one of them, J.J. got blown up on the outside. Two of them, he scored a touchdown anyway. (laughs) And those are just tough because... Generally on the zone read, I mean, the reason it works is you read a linebacker, a defensive end, and that's your conflict player, and you get him out of the play. And if he crashes on the running back, then the quarterback keeps and goes into that vacated area. And the safety is, you know, 10, 12 yards off, and he has to come up to meet him, and you've got five-ish free yards, or maybe more if you have an athletic quarterback who's good in space. When you're going up against a defense that's basically in a goal line set, the safety's at two yards. So even if you read that right, the safety is going to meet you at the line of scrimmage or in the backfield. So that's just a really tough play to get away with. Unfortunately, JJ is athletic enough that he made it work on the two touchdowns. I mean, the second he's one in particular. He's also a dog. He's like stiff arming. Well, yeah, he, he will put his shoulder down and ground. <laughs> Correct. 
Yeah, that second one in particular. I mean, it shoves the guy into the throw core that, of the earth. Throw that stiff arm, bro. <laughs> and gets throw the corner. It. And he'll put his shoulder down, right, and run over a guy if that's what it takes to get the first down or get to the goal line. We've definitely seen him do that before. Hello, Ohio State. <laughs> yeah, that was maybe my second favorite play of that game. God, yeah, that was fun. It was a good one. But, yeah, so I, I would like to see them – be a little bit more cautious with how they use that against a team like Penn State or Ohio State where you're probably not you're probably going to have an upgrade defensively from what Minnesota was playing on some of their edges so it's going to be tougher to get away with if you try to run that in the deep red zone but I mean he made it work and I think just in general he's making everything work and when you put it all together you've got uh, I pulled up the the QBR numbers for the season right now and JJ is at 93.6 out of 100 which leads the country and also, somebody tweeted the other day the all-time numbers for best QBR season in college football history, or at least as long as they have statistics for. J.J. right now is at number seven, ever. He's one spot behind Andrew Luck in 2012, which is kind of interesting given that we were talking before the season. I mean, that was our hypothesis, right? It was like, this, is, this could be J.J.'s Andrew Luck season, like when he takes the leap to, you know, second year, full starter, and it all comes together. And that... I mean, right now he's right on track for that. And anyway, he's about uh, three points behind Mac Jones for the number one spot ever, and about one and a half spot, one and a half points, excuse me, behind Joe Burrow in 2019. Those are the kind of seasons that we're talking about in terms of overall performance for JJ McCarthy right now. Is he going to finish there? Probably not. But it's crazy that Harbaugh's up there saying he might be the best quarterback in the country right now, and we're like. Yeah, he might be, even with Caleb Williams doing Caleb Williams things and Michael Penix putting up 400 yards a week, like. I don't know if there's anybody who's more in control of everything offensively than J.J. McCarthy is right now. Yeah, I mean, we were talking about this at home, but we think J.J. McCarthy is going to make a really interesting Heisman Trophy test case because, yeah, I mean, for as long as I can remember, the Heisman Trophy has been about really gaudy statistics. I, I you know, I don't even remember a time when it wasn't. I understand that in the past it was like, oh, this is a senior who's had a really good career. And there was like a little bit more consideration for that kind of stuff. I think if you even go back. I've been paying attention. It's been a gaudy stats competition. I was going to say, I think if you even go back like 10 to 15 years ago, when you get into the stretch where Alabama was winning national titles, but with great defense, and there were guys like A.J. McCarron who would be in the Heisman conversation. That to me feels like. They don't win though. They didn't mostly win, but. That kind of feels a little bit like what Michigan's going to be dealing with with J.J. this year as it relates to Heisman candidacy is he's just not going to have the raw numbers. I mean, he's playing three quarters a game and might do that all the way through, like up until November, basically. And even in this game, I mean, he threw 20 passes. I think last week it was 25. It's just not high volume. I think the thing that will matter for him that will really determine whether he is whether he actually has a chance to win the award and it's not just kind of in the conversation is what Michigan does against Ohio State and Penn State because if they win those games it's probably going to mean him playing at something like this level and if he does that on you know whether it's 25 passes or 33 passes or whatever on those stages in those games he's going to be in New York and if he doesn't then he won't yeah i mean but Ohio it is an State interesting case is one thing but Penn State I don't know. Is that really the game to throw the ball around? Like in some ways, we're obviously going to have to at least a little bit. But 
the corners and the edges are the strength of that defense, right? Yeah, you might be able to lean on the run game more. Interior defensive line for Penn State is the weakness of their defense. And so are we just going to say, J.J. will throw, obviously. We're not going to, like, put him in a box. But are we going to say, that's a game that we think Zach Zinter and Trevor Keegan and Drake Nugent and Blake Corum are going to win? That's possible. Right. I guess it's hard to say. I, I don't really know. But I think, uh, I guess even if that is the case, the Ohio State game, just again, with that stage and how many eyeballs are going to be on that game, if he goes out and wins that game with the kind of performance that it probably will require to win that game, I, I think he's in New York and might very well win it unless somebody else, you know, if, if Michael Penix takes Washington into an undefeated season with the kind of numbers he's going to have, like, sure, that's going to be tough to beat, but... You know, he, he's going to be in the mix for sure. And then it's just a matter of kind of how those games shake out in terms of his performance and maybe more importantly, Michigan's results. Because they're not going to have anybody else really who's kind of the, the face of the team the way J.J. is. And I mean, with his efficiency numbers and what he gives them in terms of both arm and legs overall offensively, it's going to be tough to argue that he shouldn't be there. If they're, uh, if they're sitting at 12-0 and 0 and have the kind of wins that that would entail. Agree. We didn't really talk about the running game at all, but Corum, I thought, looked like Blake Corum. This was <laughs> kind of a similar game for him and that the raw yardage numbers are not are not huge, and they haven't been all year, really, just because he's been in the same situation that JJ's in where they can kind of slow play him and, and they can you know save some of the tread on his tires. But he averaged 7.7 yards a carry in this game and is at 6.0 for the season. And no matter what Urban Meyer says, I think being able to limit him to nine carries in these midseason conference games is unequivocally a good thing for Michigan. What the fuck did Urban Meyer say? I mean, he's just he's been making the comments about how Michigan hasn't been playing anybody. They haven't had to play into the fourth quarter. And yeah, it, like, shut up. <laughs> That's a good thing, asshole. He's whatever. He is worms for brains. <laughs> Correct. Like, let's especially be as it relates serious. to Michigan. It's so funny listening to him talk about like he sounds like he's still. You know, he still has the, the football brain. He but when sound, he talks no, about Michigan... He sounds like an Ohio State shit poster. Correct. He does, like, he's on fucking Twitter shit posting. He doesn't sound like a real professional human being. Not about Michigan, anyway. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 But anyway, Corum, uh, nine carries, 69 yards, against one of the better defenses on the schedule, frankly. And also... It should have been eight because for the second week in a row, he got robbed of a touchdown when he was obviously in and had to do it again on the next play. So that was a little frustrating, but it is what it is. Michigan says, fuck you, and just punches it in anyway. Kalal Mullings also had eight carries, including a couple of early ones in short yardage, and I thought he just continued to look like a guy who's probably going to get real playing time with what he brings in terms of size and shiftiness with his feet and ability to, to pick up short yardage conversions. I mean, that's something that I think if you can take those carries away from Corum, that's a, a nice benefit. And he looks like a, a real find. He had that uh, incredible catch, too, on, yeah. on fourth down. I mean, there was it was a routine catch, but <laughs> it, it was really the play call that was incredible because— It was pretty shocking. It was. I mean, it's fourth and one. We, just get, we had just gotten stuffed on third and one, and Minnesota is celebrating. They're like, hell yeah. Like, everybody, they're like, you know, fist pump, all this mm-hmm. shit. And Michigan's lined up to go for it. And we know this team. They love to run wedge in that situation. And Minnesota is like, hey, they're probably going to run wedge in this situation because, of course, they are. And they had that little – they threw it, right, to Mullings. And he had that little catch. It was like a play-action little rollout situation. 
And I was like, oh, that sucks so bad. Like, if you're Minnesota, that has to be so demoralizing to give that. Like, you're just celebrating. You think you know, like, this is what Michigan's going to do. They're going to run this wedge. And they just have this, they just break out this little rollout that goes for, like, 10 untouched on fourth and one. Demoralizing as fuck. I Just smooth as hell. Like, JJ puts it right in his face mask, and he turns it right upfield. And it was an especially brutal counterplay to the wedge because – I mean, the only way you're stopping that is by crashing just about everybody inside. And what you saw when J.J. gets out on the edge there is, okay, they've got one guy kind of with Mullings, but kind of like we talked about with the, uh, with the RPO stuff, right? Like, he's in conflict. He either stays with Mullings, and J.J. can just turn it upfield and pick up five, six, seven yards, an easy conversion. Or what happens here is he kind of gets caught in between. He, he's not sure if he should come up on J.J. He hesitates. Then he tries to get back out on Mullings. And Mullings has two steps on him, and JJ just puts it right in his hands, and he's turning up, and he's gone. And yeah, it's it's uh, that's the kind of thing that you just sprinkle that stuff in a little bit here and there as a constraint to what teams know you really want to do. And it's like, oh fuck, there's there's no chance you're stopping that. Yeah, it was awesome. That's why I said I was like, it was incredible and awesome. It wasn't really the play, like the throw and catch. They were very routine. Right, it looked pretty right? routine. It's not. <laughs> Roman Wilson pinning the ball to the back yeah. of somebody's helmet. It was incredible because of the context. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I loved it. It was ruthless, and I enjoyed it. There was uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about a little bit, which was there were two pretty bad third-down drops that killed drives, one from Cornelius Johnson on Michigan's opening offensive drive, and then one from Donovan Edwards on a little, uh, little in route over the middle where it looked like he just kind of misread it. Like, he went down to the ground thinking he needed to kind of scoop it and ended up, like, hitting off his arm. Yeah, the Cornelius Johnson one, it just looked like one of those where his eyes got big because he saw he had the room and, like, didn't secure the ball before he started to go. And, like, and you see that happen. That's annoying as shit. And, you know, catch the ball. But whatever. He he also, like Keon Sab, made up for that wholesale later with his spectacular deep ball grab where he was getting – he really got interfered with. I mean, he got grabbed pretty good and kind of adjusted midair and pulled that ball in to set up, I think it was Michigan's second or third touchdown. I can't remember now. There were too many. Yeah, it's a real struggle. Um, And Edwards also had four other catches, including one particular angle route that was a big, like, eyeball emoji situation, where the angle route is he fakes like he's running out of the flat, and then he turns almost, like, perpendicular and runs a slant over the middle. And there's just not a linebacker in the country who's keeping up with Donovan Edwards on that. So if you've got a one-on-one matchup in the middle of the field, like, that's just money, and I would love to see more of that. And, and just in general, I think— I suspect we will see more of that. I think we will see more of that, yeah. But I, just I was going to say in general about both Cornelius Johnson and Donovan Edwards, it's not like we've seen their hands be a problem. So it seemed like just kind of a one-off annoying thing, which was frankly not even that annoying in a game they won by six touchdowns. Anything else on the offense? Well, do we want to talk offensive line a little bit? Yeah, we should. I think uh, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah. They're like the bread and butter. We we were just like, you know, whatever. The one interesting observation here, I guess, is that Ladarius Henderson started at left tackle, and was very good. I mean, the offensive line as a whole was very good. I think JJ's only two pressures that he had in this game were there was one. You mentioned the one where Minnesota brought pressure and he got hit and threw the touchdown to Colston Loveland anyway. And then there was another early in the game where they also brought pressure off the edge. And there were just more blitzers than Michigan had blockers in. And so J.J. rolled out to the right, looked for something, couldn't find it, ended up scrambling and went out of bounds a few yards short of the first down because he got hit. But I don't think there was an organic pressure from Minnesota's 
like defensive line in this game. So considering the way they were able to run the ball against a, a pretty good defensive interior and really allowed nothing in the way of pressure, I think Henderson's locked into that job at this point, and you've got the starting offensive line that you're probably going to see for the rest of the year, barring injury. Yeah, we speculated a little bit about whether they would redshirt Hinton, and they obviously did not because he played again in this game. Yep, he was in with the uh, the second unit, which Late was kind of game. interesting. We, we didn't really know for sure because they'd said Hinton was working through some kind of injury, and so Henderson was in, but it was like, okay, is that you – know, he looks pretty good, but if Hinton gets healthy, is he going to come back in, or is Hinton going to redshirt? kind of hard to know really what to make of the situation when one guy is hurt to at least some degree. But it seems pretty clear at this point that Henderson is the starter at left tackle. Barnhart's moved back over to right tackle where he was last year, and Hinton's going to be as part of the second unit, not redshirting. But I'm not sure that's necessarily a bad thing just because with the amount that those guys are going to get to play this year together with what's going to be probably most of the starting offensive line next year, I think giving him that development time with real snaps – given the potential that he's got, that could be a good thing for 2024. Not that we care about that right now, but... <laughs> no, we don't. Did we kick any field goals in this game? We didn't. We did. We did? Yeah. James Turner kicked one field goal. It was a, a pretty generic, like, uh, relatively short. I want to oh, say, like, yeah. 35 yards, something like that. It I'm was on doing, the Cornelius Johnson I'm drop. I'm doing the math, and it's not all multiples of seven here. It was Michigan's first offensive series, right, where Cornelius Johnson had the drop at, like, the 10-ish yard line, and it was a pretty short field goal. No oh, issues. yeah, I remember. It was a pretty uneventful special teams game, really. Yeah, I mean, totally. Tommy Doman had a couple good punts, as Tommy Doman does. No real returns of significance. I don't think there's a whole lot to talk about on that front. There were a couple other weird things, like broadcast and officiating-wise, that I know you wanted to talk about. Yeah, the broadcast was very drunk. Like, was it just me? Was it just us? The audio was cutting out, like, multiple times. And there were moments where I was like, maybe they're just picking up, like, curse words on the field. And so they're, they're like, Yeah, blocking. sometimes when they are picking up stuff at the sideline, the guys are, like, talking shit to each other. You hear, you, you hear the audio cut out, and it's like, well, I kind of know why that's happening. But there were times where it was happening when, really, they shouldn't be using the field-level audio at all because it's the announcers talking, explaining over an instant replay, right? So it didn't feel right. The audio was cutting in and out. And then there was that wild sequence where the NBC logo just kept flashing and unflashing and flashing right, going, and whoosh, unflashing. Whoosh, whoosh. Like through an entire play, like eight yeah. times. I was like, this broadcast is so drunk. Like, I, I don't know what NBC is doing. But the spots were also drunk. We talked about the one where I think they robbed Mason Graham of a sack. And the Blake Corum one, where he was pretty clearly in the end zone. I mean, he extends the ball a full yard into the end zone, and they mark him short, and then he has to score again. I mean, they said that they... On that one, I think the explanation was that they had whistled it dead, said forward progress had stopped. But it obviously had not stopped. Then again, CC Nebraska 2021. I I just think at the goal line, that's a different situation, because all the time you've got guys' legs turning, and you don't know how that's going to play out. Like, sure, if, if somebody's got a hold of you and is pulling you backwards, like, yes, the play is dead. But it happens all the time where a guy keeps moving forward or reaches the ball out, and you have to let that play out. So that I, I know you're right about what they said. I just don't agree that it was a good call, whether it was a spot or a whistle situation. Yeah, no, they did it wrong either way. And then there was one, I can't remember exactly the, the sequence of the play, but there was absolutely one where they gifted Minnesota like a yard and a half. There were multiple of those. I mean, there was one of those waggle plays where they throw to the tight end out in the flat, and he loses a, a yard and a half to two yards. He's, a, like, almost a full two yards behind the original line and of scrimmage. And they put it back at the line of scrimmage. And they spot it at the line of scrimmage, right. I was like, be so serious. And then the Donovan Edwards one. Remember, I think it's, like, late third quarter, I want to say. He picks up a, 
like a, a third and I don't know, third and medium. He falls like through a pile about a yard and a half over the first down spot, and they spot him half a yard short. And that was when Harbaugh challenged, and they reviewed it and said, "Call on the field stands." And it's like, what, what, what are we doing here? Yeah, I don't know why why the spots are so drunk. I have a like. My theory is these refs are trying to get out of there, and so they're like, it's third down. Run one more play to get this. It's, you didn't get it on second down. You got to do it again. I, I want to I think go there's home. times late in the game when they're like, eh, <laughs> it's fine. Let's all I'm get out of here. I'm trying to get a juicy Lucy, and I don't give a fuck. Let me go home. That is the thing to do in Minnesota, right? Yeah, yeah. I think. I don't know. I've been there once. I don't know what to tell you. But That's one more time that I've been, so I'm I'll not, take your I'm word for it. I'm not a Minnesota it. expert by any means. But no, I it spots were drunk. I, I don't really get it. Moving on. Yeah, fortunately, it made absolutely no difference in this ass kicking of a game. No, the whole offense not playing wouldn't have made a difference in this <laughs> ass kicking of a game. It might have been a little more uncomfortable for a while, but <laughs> this was really never uncomfortable, which is uh, the way we the way we like it. Now. Yeah, that's what I enjoy it that way. Low stress, we love it. Yes. You want to talk about some of the other games? Some of these were a little bit way more high stress, depending on your rooting interests. No, they were fun for me. I, my ideal weekend is where everybody else plays close games and Michigan wins yeah, by 45. <laughs> it's perfect. No notes. So this was basically a perfect weekend for me. We'll start with Red River, which is consistently one of my favorite games of the year. Yeah, I feel like once every five years, it's like 49 to nothing. And like every other year. year, it absolutely slaps. It's no. just pure chaos from beginning to end. And it's this one was best. a special version of that, I think. It's the best. I mean, you know, interception on the second play. I've seen that before. Another one a couple possessions later. Blocked punt for a touchdown. A huge reverse on a kickoff that's called back for an illegal forward pass on the pitch. Like, it, chaos drive for an Oklahoma win. That game is the best. I want to go to it so bad. I mean, we talked about this last week, but I really want to go to it. We're going to make that happen. Texas yeah, it, it just, State Fair, baby. It really is. Like, that, that game somehow just, uh, yeah, every year it lives up to the hype. So I hope that never changes, just even with the move to the SEC, that that's one thing that you just can't, you can't lose that. No, don't change it. And in more like, I guess more like salient season takeaways, Oklahoma might be for real. I can't even do a, like, Texas back bit here because I thought Texas looked pretty good and I thought Oklahoma looked almost exactly as good. And it was just kind of one of those games where it was like, yeah, yeah these teams are pretty legit. Yeah, but top 10 good to me, not like top five Well, yeah, good. I think that's fair. Right. I don't think, I mean, we talked about Michigan, and I think Georgia kind of proved themselves on that tier. We can talk a little bit more about that game. But it does feel like there's a little bit of a drop-off. And then there are some teams that are very good, but obviously flawed. But I still think Oklahoma and Texas are top 10 good and, and legit playoff contenders. Oklahoma's got a pretty good shot to win out. They have a few like decent teams ahead on the road that they're going to have some tests ish. Right, like Kansas can score a lot, but like Texas just pretty well handled Kansas just two right, weeks yeah. ago. So it's really that's just some of the most compelling stuff in the sport when those teams It's about go. as good as it gets, honestly. Yeah, and we enjoyed every minute of that. It was awesome. And speaking of wild endings, Miami. holy shit, Miami. No, Mario Cristobal should be in prison. Like, I, I assume that just about everyone knows what we're talking about here, but if you don't, so Miami is leading by, I think they were leading by three with about 30 seconds left. And all they have to do is take a knee because Georgia Tech is out of timeouts and Miami's at something like the Georgia Tech 25-yard line. Are they up three? Yeah, so then, yeah, it was three because they ended up win Georgia Tech won by three. Yeah, so. so Miami's up three with 30 seconds left in Georgia Tech territory. Georgia Tech is out of timeouts. All you have to do 
is take a knee. They run a play. They run it up the middle, and the ball comes out at the end. Very iffy as to whether it was really a fumble. They review it. They say, yes, it was a fumble. Georgia Tech recovers. So, I mean, starting right here, like, what the fuck are you doing? Take a knee. The game is over. Just take a knee. And yeah, I, we'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there. So that's step one. Step two, I mean, Georgia Tech is at their own 25-yard line when they recover this fumble with, I think, 25 seconds left. They've got to go at least 45-ish yards for a real shot at a field goal. I think the first play was an incomplete pass, if I remember right. It takes like four seconds off the clock. Second play, quarterback gets out of the pocket, finds a guy downfield like 30 yards. All of a sudden, they're right up to uh, just, just past midfield with like, I don't know, 12 seconds left. Right, and my dumb ass is thinking, oh, maybe field goal range Right, is so at this table. point, right, you're, you're thinking, this. yeah, if you can get, you know, maybe a 10, 15 yard out here, get out of bounds, you've got a shot at a field goal. But Mario Cristobal said no. Oh, my God. And Miami must enough. have been thinking the same thing because it's a similar situation as to the previous play where the quarterback is kind of looking, looking, he rolls out of the pocket, throws a ball deep up the right side, and there's no safety there. There's a Georgia Tech uh, receiver coming across the field behind everybody, catches it in stride, goes into the end zone with one second left. And it's just, I don't know if I've ever seen a sequence of plays that catastrophic from one team, from the not taking a knee when literally all you had to do was get in the victory formation to giving up 75 yards in 20 seconds for the winning touchdown. I mean, as a neutral observer, it was amazing. (laughs) It was one of those things where it's like, this is not something you're maybe ever going to see again, that sort of outcome. Except that Mario Cristobal has <laughs> already done this once. So I not only have seen it before, I've seen it twice with the same fucking head coach. Yeah, it turns out about, oh, what was it, like 2017, 2017 something like that? 2017 or 18, something like that, yeah. Yeah, when he's at Oregon, he's in the same situation where Oregon has the game won, all they have to do is take a knee, they run it, they fumble, Stanford recovers, kicks the tying field goal and wins in overtime. You would think, <laughs> like, if that happened once ever. I, Jim like, Harbaugh uh, got one rugby punt blocked on a game-losing situation and, never, and disavowed rugby, rugby punting till the end of time. Right. I just, like, how how can that ever even come close to happening again if you're Mario Cristobal? It's truly baffling. It, it was amazing, like I said, to watch as a neutral observer. But if I'm a Miami fan, I'd have walked into the ocean. The, yeah, this is why... I prefer college football to the NFL. NFL teams don't do this shit. Like once every five years, the Lions would do something (laughs) this catastrophic. The Lions are their own category. Listen, we're not going to talk shit about them. We're it's the historical Lions, not this year's Lions. This is a different. It's time for one pride. But it's just like you don't really see NFL teams do shit this catastrophically fucking stupid. Like. The NFL equivalent to this is like, why didn't you hand the ball off to Marshawn Lynch? You know, why are you throwing at the goal line? Or why didn't you use your timeout here? Why'd you go for two here? Whatever. It's like debatable decisions. But like not taking a knee, like not getting in victory formation. Like the most basic thing. (laughs) Like be so fucking for real. I couldn't believe it. I was cackling. I was in tears. I loved it. Truly unbelievable. It was amazing. One million out of ten. Actually, don't ever change Mario Cristobal. <laughs> fair, fair. Uh, another kind of stupid ending, I thought, was USC and Arizona, which just, uh, it was a great game, honestly. Arizona was arguably the better team for most of that game. and Reason number 852 that I'm a USC non-believer. Well, yeah. Yeah, yeah we'll talk about that. So this game ends up going into overtime. USC scores late to tie it. They force overtime. 
USC scores on the first possession, I think on like the second play. I think Arizona then scores on its first play. And so it's, you know, right off the bat, it's like boom, touchdown, boom, touchdown. And if you're Arizona, you've got one play from the two and a half yard line against USC's defense to win the game. Why are you putting the ball back in Caleb Williams' hands instead of fucking doing that? Right. I don't get it. You get it. one play against USC's defense for two and a half yards for the win, or you opt to go into an additional score-off period with Caleb Williams, and they kick the PAT, and they're never in that situation again. USC wins in double overtime. Like, it was just a baffling decision, and it kind of feels like the way it played out, it's because Arizona's coaching staff didn't know the overtime rules. Because in the second overtime, you have to go for two. And Arizona went first in the second overtime. And they send out the, the PAT team. And the officials come over and they're like, yo, <laughs> what are you doing? And you see Jed Fish kind of mouth like, oh, I, I didn't know. I didn't realize we had to go for two. And that's just especially brutal because it kind of makes you think that if he had known he had to go for two in the second overtime, he would have just done it in the first one. You're already in that situation, but you have the chance to win outright without USC having a chance to respond. Right. So... That just had to be really devastating. I mean, and then second they ran straight a week. Terrible two point conversion play. Well, yeah, the one to end the game was a toss sweep that got blown up like six yards in the backfield. It's terrible. But, but uh, it was second week in a row. Arizona. I mean, uh, two weeks ago they played like a dead even game with Washington and came up a touchdown short. And then this week they did the same with USC. Maybe even outplayed them. In those two games, they held Michael Penix and Caleb Williams to a combined one touchdown pass, and they come out zero and two. It's just, uh, <laughs> I, I feel for you, Arizona, because that's a legitimately, like, pretty good team. But they couldn't, you know, they had two chances to pull off a huge upset and couldn't do it. And now it's probably a situation where they're going to be, like, scratching and clawing for bowl eligibility, which I, I hope they get there. But those are uh, obviously the kind of games where you look back and it's like, oh, God. Yeah. I was going to say about USC. I mean, we were oh, just talking about their, their defense. Yeah. And they, <laughs> I mean. That defense sucks. Next. It, it, it's terrible. Arizona shredded it this week. We saw Arizona State, which is a shit show right now, shred it a few weeks ago. And it's just, it's so hard to see how that's really going to survive the test they're going <laughs> to, the test they're going to have here coming up over the next few weeks. They've got Oregon and Washington toward the end of the regular season. And then I think they have three other ranked teams. The only they unranked team they have left. Coming. Well, right. The only unranked team they have left on the schedule is Cal. Everybody else is ranked right now because it's, Oregon, Washington, not in this order, but Oregon, Washington, UCLA, Utah, and then this coming week, Notre Dame, which the shine came off of that <laughs> golden season a little bit this week for uh, for Notre Dame. Yeah, it did. Um, they lost to Louisville, which good on you, Jeff Brom. We, Six and oh, Louisville. I know. I know, which is crazy. But it wasn't what I would expect, which is I think of Jeff Brom as being kind of an offensive innovator, but it was really yeah. the defense. Notre Dame had 298 total yards, including only 20 rushing yards for estimate. Yeah, 10 carries for 20 yards. And he's been maybe the best back in the country this year. Like, Very funny how you when you about... compare to his rushing performance against a certain oh, team in yeah. Columbus, Ohio. Yeah, I mean, Notre Dame ran the ball down their throat when they wanted to in that game. And against Louisville, 10 carries for 20 yards, like... It says something. <laughs> yeah, it says, I think that defense is sus, and I'll talk more <laughs> about that later. But, I mean, Hartman throws three picks. It, yeah, it was just a, a rough rough night for Notre Dame. As same Hartman, actually. I think Wake Forest may have been undefeated last year and then went to Louisville and lost. So it just seems like that's a house of horror situation for Sam Hartman in particular. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, actually. But there was one other fun thing I was going to point out here, which is that somebody made the point there's kind of this ACC anomaly 
with the way the schedule sets up where Florida State, North Carolina, and Louisville are all top 20 right now, all undefeated, and they could all finish undefeated and not play each other, which would be really wild that you could have an undefeated Power 5 team not playing in its conference championship game. Realistically, that probably doesn't happen because you've still got Miami in there and you've still got Clemson in there. None of these teams are good enough that I expect them to go six more games without losing. Uh, Right. Yeah. But it would be really wild to have that situation where at the end of the year it's like, what the fuck? We've got, you know, undefeated teams in the same conference that somehow are. I mean, if it's only two, they're going to play each other either in the ACC championship game or something. Wait, how is that possible? Because aren't like there are three teams here. I, I'm 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 struggling now. I know this is right because I've seen other people talk about it, not just you. Like you didn't make this up. But what I don't understand is the ACC has divisions, right? It's a good point. They have a, the coastal and whatever the fuck the other one is. And so it's like... It may have something to do with the Notre Dame scheduling agreement because they weasel in Notre Dame for like quasi-conference games. Like right? how is there... ACC like there are three teams. Presumably two of them have right. to be in the same division. Yeah, I was going to say, like they must play at some point if they're in the same division or they would play in the conference championship game. But that must not be true for whichever two teams are yeah, in the Yeah, I don't division. know how or why. Well, I'm, I'm very curious now about the root cause of this scheduling analysis. What is the other ACC division? There's the Coastal and what's the other one? I don't even know. The, but, I don't know, the Atlantic or something? That seems right. I don't know. Whatever. But you, you know what I mean, right? Which is to say, if you've got three teams and you've got two divisions, there's, there's got to be overlaps. It would make sense that they right? would play it, that at least two of them would play each other. In so some it's sense. super weird that they don't. I don't really understand why. But I have seen this very same bit like circulating all over the internet. Okay, so I'm incorrect. There are, as of this year, no longer divisions. Ah, that's <laughs> perfect right. timing. Good, we love it. Yeah, they implemented a three-five-five where you have like three locked-in rivals. I and didn't you rotate realize that that had rest. happened already. I didn't either. I see. Okay. Well, yeah, that makes a lot more sense <laughs> then, I suppose. Sense. But yeah, so kind of a weird situation there. Probably won't matter, but something to kind of keep an eye on because it could be a really wild situation there down the stretch for the ACC. The other game I wanted to talk about a little bit before we get to Big Ten stuff was I mentioned Georgia. Unfortunately, they did kind of finally look like Georgia. Which yeah. isn't ideal. They got They're starting to really take the training wheels off of Carson Beck here yeah. a little bit. And I think they felt like they needed to to they wanted to put this thing against Kentucky on ice early. They that's a team that's sticky and will hang around and will play the And they'll turn of, it into a gross game. Yes. The way that Iowa will. They'll Michigan State you like, you know, D'Antonio Old Michigan, time Michigan State, State you. Yeah. yeah. And they'll Iowa you. And so, yeah, they, they wanted to put that motherfucker on ice. So they came out throwing with Carson Beck, which is not something that we have really seen from Georgia to this point because they haven't had to do it. They've kept the training wheels on that guy for the most part while he's easing into the job. And if he is, you know, going to be fully weaponized and look like... Look like that. <laughs> look like that. Look like, you know, everything that Stetson Bennett was a year ago... That's scary. They just got scarier. Yeah, we'll see. I'm not buying that he is going to be what Stetson Bennett was a year ago. Two years ago, maybe. I mean, Stetson Bennett, I remember last year, had C.J. Shroud numbers. He had like 4,000 yards and 40 touchdowns, and it was like, okay, this is really a dude now. I don't think he's going to be that, but if he is what he is, or if he is what Stetson Bennett was in 2021, that's still going to be enough to make Georgia you know, a legit national title contender. And just given the way their schedule sets up, I mean, they have Ole Miss and Tennessee to end the year, which maybe they can get a challenge from one of those teams. But realistically, I just don't see who's going to hang with Georgia during the regular season, at least. So this team's probably going to be number one 
at least until you know conference championship game season comes along. Definitely. I will say Kentucky Kentucky was more in this game early than I think the score indicated. They had a couple of possessions where they were kind of grinding out first downs. They were able to move the ball some, and they just couldn't quite finish. And because Georgia was able to punch it in a couple times early, it really kind of kind of flipped the whole state of the game. So I, I don't know that I would say that this was as dominant as it looked, but it was still a pretty impressive performance from Georgia, especially given that you know against Auburn they looked pretty shaky. And just in general, they'd really struggled against teams much worse than Kentucky, especially in the first half, to, to separate and make themselves look like the Georgia we'd seen in the past couple of years. Okay, can we talk about the game I really want to talk about now? <laughs> Which game is that? There was a mid-off in Columbus, Ohio this weekend. <laughs> Elaborate, please. <laughs> like, Ohio State, again, they beat Maryland in a game, I don't remember the final score, 37 to 20. I think it was 37 30, to 17. Something like that, right? In a game where the final result looks much more lopsided than the game actually was. I mean, this thing is knotted up. It's tied. 37-17. the second half, Maryland is. It was 17-17 to, I think, late in the third quarter. Yeah, I mean. And Maryland was up 10 nothing early, right? Correct. Ohio State. There was like a legitimate possibility that they went into the half with a goose egg on the scoreboard, yeah. you know, and that's against Maryland. Yep. Against Maryland. I'm going to repeat myself in case you didn't hear me. Against Maryland. Yeah, Maryland was totally in control of this game in the first half. It was 10 nothing with maybe five or so minutes left in the half, and Talia Tagovailoa throws a terrible pick six that gives Ohio State life, makes it 10-7. And you made this point on Twitter, like, Maryland's really going to the one thing you can't do this whole game away. And that was exactly what happened. So they had that situation where it looks like you're 10 nothing, maybe going into the half. And Ohio State, there were grumbles. Every fucking unsuccessful Every series play. Is, you can hear it in the crowd where it's like, oh, these people are not pleased with what they're seeing. Like, there are legit concerns. You can hear it. I'm... I. I'm hearing it on television. Right. The like restlessness in the crowd was audible. It was so cool. <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's 10 seven and they're kind of, you kind of feel the relief like, okay, we've got something. We're going to get it going. And that's just, those are just the mistakes you can't make. But then it's, so I think Ohio state got maybe a field goal right before the end of the half, like a minute and a half left. Maryland gets the ball back. They're driving. They get down to about the Ohio state 25 ish yard line. And with like 12 seconds left and no timeouts, it's Talia like, oh, okay, runs the world's dumbest play. Right, you've got to go to the sideline or you've got to go to the end zone. And what does Talia do? He throws like a, a four-yard check down where the guy gets tackled and there's obviously not even close to enough time to get everybody back and line up for a field goal. So the half just ends and you've lit three points on fire and all of a sudden it's like, you should be winning this game at worst 13-3 to and instead you're tied on the road against Ohio State. And that's just the kind of situation where it's like, you kind of know, like you kind of feel what's coming after you couldn't do what you should have done in the first half to really put the screws on them and, and make them puckered up tight the whole second half. And even then, I mean, it was 17-17, like late third quarter. Maryland's got the ball, and what do you get? You get another terrible interception, even with Ohio State struggling to move the ball. Sets Ohio State up with a, a short field. They score again, and all of a sudden the, the wheels just come off for Maryland at that point. So it, it was... It was very much the Maryland experience where you're watching them and you're like, man, this team, this team looks like it might be better than Ohio State. Is this you know, a real threat this year? Because it kind of seems like they are. And then Talia does Talia things and they implode in the second half. And it's like, 
Oh yeah, it's it's still Maryland. <laughs> just just wanted to confirm. But the Ohio no, State offense, I mean, they, yeah, I mean, for what feels like the fourth weekend, basically since they kicked the shit out of Western Kentucky, almost every game this year, other than the Western Kentucky one, that's the one game they've looked like a complete team. And every other week, every other game they've played this year has been very uninspired. Yeah, it's been grumble, grumble city. I mean, and when you look at, again, we've talked about this so many times, but the net success rates charts, you know, Michigan is all the way over to the right at the highest possible end of the chart, as far as you can be where they have the largest gap between their success rate and their opponents. Right, where everybody's lined up left to right. Michigan is number one at the far right end. Or number two, or number three. Like, even against Bowling Green, it was like third. Yeah, I think they were second or third, right. It's been dominance every week. It's dominance. Ohio State hangs out in the dead center of that graph, which is where the teams that are playing at a dead even heat with each other go. Middle of the pack. And when you're playing Notre Dame and you get outgained a little bit, like, okay, Notre Dame's probably a top 10 team. When you're doing that against Indiana and against Maryland, (laughs) that's an indication that you kind of are that. You've got problems. I mean, they've got... Iffy quarterback play, very questionable tackle play, and no. Yeah, McCord got sacked three times. It was just all the all the things they've been struggling with in the passing game, and they have no running game to mitigate that. They averaged one point nine yards a carry against a Maryland team that's mostly dropping eight guys. They just cannot run the ball at all. It's not there. I know Trevion Henderson wasn't playing, and that helps a little bit because with his speed, even though the offensive line isn't very good, if you can get him to the second level, he's a threat. You have to account for, but. They just can't run the ball against anybody. And every week you watch them and it's like, is this a problem? Is this a problem? At some point, it's just a problem that's not going away. Yeah, and it feels like we're getting dangerously close to that point. I mean, we've talked about this before. I'm in general a Penn State skeptic. Mm -hmm. I'm a very big Penn State (laughs) non-believer. But, but... When I look at that matchup, it's really fascinating because that game approaches. It's not this weekend, but it's the next weekend. James Franklin went ahead and scheduled UMass for the week right before Ohio State, so he's got a bye. Functional bye. A double bye, because weren't they on the bye? That's true, yeah. A double bye. Um, They know what they're doing there. (laughs) For James Franklin to prepare for Ohio State. But it does really feel like for them that that's going to be a strength-on-strength, weakness-on-weakness matchup because – like I said, Ohio State can't run the ball, and you know they they're not gonna, I think, try. But the thing is, that's maybe where Penn State's biggest defensive weakness is. It's their interior defensive line. Well, I think we've said this before that Penn State and Ohio State, or Penn State is kind of at least it feels to me like Penn State is built to be more like Ohio State. They're built to play Ohio State's game and try to beat them at that game. Whereas Michigan is built in just such a fundamentally different way from both of them. I just think trying to beat Ohio State at their own game doesn't work unless you are Georgia or Alabama because Ohio State's always going to Ohio State better than you. And there's a reason that Penn State hasn't won that game since 2016, the blocked field. I mean, ass shit. (laughs) But like, no, I mean, if you're Ohio State, it's like, okay, well, you want to throw the ball around. Penn State's got great corners and they've got great rushers, but they don't have a good interior defensive line. If you could run the ball, that might be helpful to you. You can't. Right on the other side of the ball – Penn State's got kind of a, a very mid offense. It's like barely top thirty on SP. I don't think plus. it is top thirty, anymore. or it might have moved up to like 29. 29. Yeah, like it's like fringe top thirty and a really really good defense. Ohio State doesn't have a great defense. Like I know the right now the statistics seem to suggest that they do. I'm very skeptical of this. 
And so it, it's just that that matchup gets more and more compelling. And I'm come it's closer really hard to and see closer to picking Penn State every week. <laughs> well, I told you a couple of weeks ago, I feel like Penn State, I might take them straight up against Ohio State. I, I'm still not sure because every time I watch one of them, I'm like, oh, this team's got flaws and that team's got flaws. Like, I, I don't know. But yeah, that's going to be a, a really interesting one just because of, like you said, the the matchups. And I just have a really hard time seeing either offense doing a lot because it, it does seem like the strengths for those defenses align with the weaknesses for the offenses. So it, I feel like it's going to look quite a bit different from what we've seen from a lot of Penn State, Ohio State games, which have been kind of more in the shootout category. Yeah. Speaking of Ohio State's offense, I mean, just to kind of put a point on the way that the mighty have fallen here, their offense is, you know, we're so accustomed to high-flying offense that's either first or second in SP+, and a defense that's like top 10-ish, top 15-ish, and that's, you know, what they've been in the last two years. Yeah, I mean, the last two years it's been, I think they've been number one or number two in SP-plus offense every single week. And right now their offense is actually ninth, below Michigan's on SP+. Yeah, Michigan is eighth, and Ohio State is ninth. And that that might be the only time, that's probably the only time in the history of SP-plus that Michigan's been, or the first time that Michigan's been ahead of Ohio State on the offensive side of the ball. And keep in mind that there's still some inclusion of preseason projections, I think until about week eight or nine, when you get about two thirds of the way through the season, when you've got enough data points to start dropping out Your prior data points. Yeah. yeah. And what that means is that Ohio State's really been worse than ninth. And every week as you get further away from the preseason uh, forecast, that offense drops a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And that's why they've dropped overall to fourth. They're behind Georgia and Texas at this point. That's right. Point. Yeah, Texas is still number three. I think that gap's pretty close. Ohio State was number two last week. But as you know, like you said, as that offense slides, the team overall goes with it. And yeah, like I said, there's just there's fundamental weaknesses there that I really don't think are going away. And even if you believe that their defense is as good as it has looked so far, which we're both pretty skeptical of, that's going to be something that they have to get figured out if they're going to be a legit like playoff contender. Yeah. We've always got an eye on Columbus, and I think they've always got an eye on Ann Arbor. So it's just I think that's a fair statement. It's just the way it works. But in other Big Ten news, Wisconsin, you know, handles Rutgers in a game that was as gross as you would expect. But it does set up a matchup with Iowa this weekend that will probably decide the Big Ten West because for all of the shit we've talked about Iowa, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, if you were to just clip the parts of this podcast <laughs> that we talk about Iowa with no context, I feel like you would think this team has won no games. You would think Iowa is Northwestern, basically. Correct. You would be like, wow, they must be fucking atrocious. The reality is they're 5-1. and one. <laughs> <laughs> They're 5-1 and one with, uh, I mean, we said earlier they have the uh, the number one SP plus offense, which is probably a little bit inflated, but it, it's a, you know, very good to elite offense, or I'm sorry, very good to elite defense. Very good to elite <laughs> offense. Don't The offense Ryan is the like exact, <laughs> the exact inverse of that because they are, 122nd out of 133 teams right now in SP plus offense. And I mean, somehow they beat Purdue this week, 20 to 14. And I, I say somehow, like we know exactly how, because every Iowa game is exactly the same, but they had 291 total yards. Deacon Hill went six of 21 passing. They came in well under their 25 points per game target for the fifth time in six games. And yet here they are at five and one. It just, it is inevitable. They really are inevitable. So this game maybe decides the Big Ten West, I think. Yeah, I mean, with point. what we've seen from Minnesota, Nebraska, Purdue, Illinois has been really down. 
like maybe Purdue, but Purdue just lost to Iowa. Like, I just don't see anybody else really making a run given where those teams are at right now. So, yeah, this is probably about it. Yeah, which might be relevant to our interests, so I suppose we're keeping an eye on that one. It might be. December, uh, yeah, it could matter. It could matter. You could avoid that. Yeah, you don't have to watch that game because there is a better game. We will, though, at least a little bit, I'm sure. Because we're sickos. Yeah, well, that's this is our conference full of disgusting football. That's right. Next year, the game I'm about to discuss is going to be our conference. Oregon and Washington play in the same time slot. Yeah, that game absolutely rules, and it's probably also for a division title because you've got two, you know, certainly top ten, if not top five teams. And it seems pretty unlikely that either one of them, whoever wins this game, is going to lose twice more. So you've probably got the Pac-12 North on the line. You've got two of the best, I mean, certainly two of the best offenses in the country. And uh, you might have two Heisman candidate quarterbacks, certainly Heisman candidates. I meant more like Heisman finalist quarterbacks because between Michael Penix and Bo Nix, you're – you're not going to get many better matchups this year other than maybe when each of these teams plays USC down the stretch. So that's just going to be a, a really fun one, one of the better, more entertaining games of the year and one that's obviously going to have pretty significant playoff implications. Didn't they play like a wild shootout last year too that had like a crazy ending? Like Oregon did something dumb, I think, at the end of this game. I think that was the game when Bo Nix was hurt and he had to come off, like he got dinged, was maybe like in concussion protocol. And Oregon went for like a fourth and one that could have put the game away, and they didn't get it with their backup quarterback in. And it was kind of a kind of an iffy decision where like you don't have Bo Nix, do you really want to do that? But also, you're going up against that Washington offense. I just it, remember we were in it was Ann kind Arbor, of a controversial, and we one. watched the tail end of that one in the hotel. And like I yeah. I can picture myself sitting there, and I can picture myself yelling at the TV, and I don't really yeah. remember why. I'm pretty sure that was what happened at the end of that game. It was kind of a controversial one, but like you said, it was a, a really fun one, and I bet we'll get another good one this year. Okay, speaking of things that are less fun, we've got Indiana this weekend, and this <laughs> might be actually the worst team we play all year. Like maybe even lands worse than the non-conference opponents when things are all said and done because they're on that level. <laughs> they are, uh, yeah. This might this be is, Tom really Allen's last stand here. I think he just got a big contract extension maybe before last season. So he's probably got enough contract runway that I don't think they can afford to fire him, basically is what I'm saying after this year. But... They are just coming off a bye week, and they just fired offensive coordinator Walt Bell, which kind of feels to me like uh, we know something's got to change. Somebody has to go here, and uh, that was probably fair because the offense has been atrocious. The defense has been only marginally better, and uh, yeah, they've just been they've been terrible this year. They are still slightly ahead of Northwestern in SP Plus, so technically not the worst team in the Big Ten. But to your point about where they kind of line up with uh, with Michigan's non-conference opponents even, they are 95th in SP+, which puts them right in between UNLV and East Carolina and a little bit ahead of Bowling Green. So that's the kind of general shape uh, of what Michigan's going to be going up against this week is somebody in between UNLV and East Carolina, which you watch those games, you know what happened. <laughs> But I am curious about a couple things. I guess with uh, Walt Bell just being fired, I'm curious if they are going to, uh, just how they're going to look on offense. Are they going to break out some new stuff? It's kind of tough to scout for a team that might just look fundamentally different on offense than it did two weeks ago. That being said, we've seen a few weeks in a row now teams throw in a wrinkle early in the game, 
and get maybe a couple chunks, you know, maybe a couple first downs, whatever. And then Michigan adjusts and the game is over. And given what we've seen from Indiana this year, that's pretty much probably the best case scenario. I was that. told after week one that Indiana was actually very, very good. You were, that's true. And that we, you know, we don't know how good they are and they might actually be really, really good. And so I should be afraid. Who was saying that again? I don't know. Just some people. Some people, yeah. 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 Just Un- unbiased observers, undoubtedly. Correct. But yeah, they are. Uh, they are not, in fact, good. Narrator says they are not, in fact, good. <laughs> on offense. Uh, just to expand on that a little bit, they've been playing both Taven Jackson and Brendan Sorby at quarterback this year, and as you would probably expect, both of them have been pretty bad collectively. They're averaging about uh, six and a half yards an attempt with four touchdowns and three picks. They have had a little bit more of a running game this year. I mean, last year they had none whatsoever. And this year they've been okay, kind of, with Jalen Lucas, who's kind of more of a, a speedy, you know, lightning type of guy. And Christian Turner. Remember Christian Turner? I do. He's been on a, a journey for a while here. He was at Wake Forest for a bit and has found his way to Indiana, where he is getting real playing time, which is, I guess, good for him. Probably not, you know, a particularly pleasant experience in terms of success, but... Anyway, they do also have a couple decent receivers in Camp Camp Cam Camper, excuse me, and Donovan McCulley. Both of them have some pretty decent yards per catch numbers, but I think this just feels like Minnesota and that actually getting those guys the ball has been a real challenge. And unlike Minnesota, the offensive line is just atrocious. I mean, didn't we have like a million sacks last year? I think they had nine last year. Yeah. And yeah. this line is maybe even worse than that one. Like, this is going to be a bloodbath. And our line is better. Yeah, you've seen Michigan's defensive line against MAC-level offensive lines this year, and bloodbath. It's, that's, it's gross, That is yeah. what's going to happen here. So the other side of the ball I'm a little bit less sure about, just because they're 89th in SP-plus defense, which is only slightly better than they are on offense. But, I mean, we did see them against Ohio State in the opener, and we've seen Ohio State have some struggles, so... Like, it's kind of funny that we're talking about this game and saying, like, you know, Ohio State's offense maybe isn't that good. But maybe even more impressive than that, they held Louisville to 21 points a few weeks ago in a 21-14 loss, which that actually kind of looks like an accomplishment that means something now, given what Louisville's doing. That being said, since that game, they have also given up almost 500 yards to Akron in a game that went to four overtimes, and Akron is absolutely one of the worst teams in the country. And then they gave up almost 500 to Maryland, in a 44-17 loss right before the bye week. So I just don't quite know what to make of that defense. As best as I can tell, and from what we've seen from Indiana the past couple of years, they're willing to be somewhat somewhat aggressive in trying to take away what you want to do against Michigan the last couple of years. That's been throwing linebackers up the middle and trying to get Michigan in some behind-the-stick situations, some second and 11, that kind of thing. But everything else defensively for them just – seems like it's going to be really a problem because they have no organic pass rush whatsoever. And the secondary seems unusually bad for what we've seen out of Indiana the last few years. They are third worst in the Big Ten right now at allowing plays of 20-plus yards and 30-plus yards. And they are worst in the conference in plays allowed of 40-plus, 60-plus, and 70-plus. So it seems like they're able to, like, muck shit up a little bit, but when they get got, they get got in like the worst possible way. So I think this could be, if Michigan wants it to be, like a 300-yard day for J.J. like it was last year. 
but honestly, it kind of seems unlikely that they're even going to need the volume of throws that it would take to get there. Yeah, I, I don't really see them doing a lot here. In fact, I almost feel like it could get not like dicey. I don't think it's going to get dicey in any universe, but I can, I can imagine them doing what we've done with Rutgers in the past, like just absolutely slamming the door on anything interesting and making this game like boring and fast. I, I do think that we've seen much less of Michi- of that from Michigan this year, right? Early in the game, they've been, you know, they'll run JJ once, say this is a thing you have to look for. And they'll go play action a little bit early. And they'll throw in some stuff to say, we're going to punch you in the mouth and we're not going to mess around. So I wouldn't be surprised if you see a little bit of that. And and hopefully it'll pay off. I mean, this is the kind of game where it should pay off. And if you can get a couple scores and kind of take control, then I think what you said probably holds up that, okay, at that point it's, you know, run the ball up the gut, grind this out, and get out of here. I think it's also supposed to be kind kind of rainy on Saturday. At least maybe for part of the day, it's yeah. A the forecast iffy. looks pretty rainy. So, I was looking, and the uh, the Vegas line for this game right now is Michigan by thirty four, and the SP plus implied line is Michigan by thirty six and a half. You're talking about pretty big again, like UNLV and East Carolina level lines here. I think those might be a little high, just given that I don't know that Michigan's going to be super compelled to do anything <laughs> of note here or or really play this out much beyond the first half. So. If they get out, you know, 24 nothing at halftime, it might be, like, the quickest second half you've ever seen in a Michigan game. Yeah. I mean, didn't the Nebraska game or Rutgers game, one of those games ended in, like, 253? It might have been the Rutgers game. Because remember, the, the fourth quarter, there were only three possessions. Michigan went on, like, a seven-minute drive, and then Rutgers had a drive that ended, and then Michigan went on, like, another seven-minute drive yeah, that we, ended, ran out the clock. We might see another one of those. Yeah. Yeah, I, I guess the caveat is that this really is one of the worst teams Michigan played all, has played all year, including the non-conference team. So even if it is a game that they can kind of pack their bags early, it, it still might be you know a 30 to 40 point win. So we'll see. I, I don't think it's going to be particularly interesting, but hopefully we just continue to see the, uh, the precision and the all-around performances that we've seen in the last few weeks, because just like we talked about off the top, the way it's all been coming together and even the things we've talked about where uh, there might be a little bit of an issue here, we're not really sure. It seems like almost immediately they're just slamming the door on that and saying, nope, <laughs> not a problem. We've got it covered. Yeah, see you never. I'm not doing this. So we'll be hoping for another low-stress day and what should be a, a 7-0 start for what looks right now to be maybe the best team in the country and maybe the best Michigan team of a lot of our lifetimes. I have nothing to add. That's that's the ending (laughs) it's perfect so if you're still here thank you for listening and we will see you back next week go blue